Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy. With discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational thought. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. And I'm speaking to Professor Donna Haraway about when species meet. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to do this with you. So, look, what was it that inspired you to write the book, When Species Meet? Many things uh, came together in the writing of When Species Meet, uh, which was published in 2008 and maybe written over a very intense year, but had roots that went back way before that. And I think maybe the most important single thing was the very, very close relationship that my dog, Cayenne, and I had, both as sports partners in the sport of agility, but also uh, in a kind of deep learning with each other about uh, what it really means to be in, in complex relationality as members of different species, what it really means to build up a practice of respect with a companion who is not uh, it was really radically not like oneself. And in the context of that work and play with Cayenne, who was born in 1999 and was a relationship that changed me body and soul, uh, the issues of the commercialization of relations with pets, the complex, multi, you know, multi-sided relationships of exploitation as well as advocacy, the complex issues around environmentalism, uh, the relationships of critters and technologies, all of these things came together in, in very specific situated kinds of cases, but deeply informed by a very personal relationship between Cain and me. Right now, I've been reading a little of your book, When Species Meet, and you write something very interesting in there about humans, well being made up of, of lots of different materials. So have we ever really been human? Well, I, you know, I was pretty sure you were going to ask that question. And I've written a lot about it, but I decided that I was going to go online to an etymological dictionary and refresh my understandings. And one of the things I relearned is that the word human in English uh, and in Old French... Of course, it's from Latin, humanus, but maybe more, uh, more anciently than that, in its Indo-European roots, goman means earthling, earthling or earthly being as opposed to the gods. Now, in that sense, I embrace the term human, and I embrace the term human as it goes to its another, another kind of root or branch of humus or compost, or the rotting together of the beings of the earth in living and dying, and the kind of coming into being with each other as earthlings. But that said, the 
term human in modern versions of politics, biology, philosophy, has tended to mean the human in contradistinction to everything else as a kind of human exceptionalism or bounded individualism or human versus the rest of the critters, human versus technology, human as an exceptionalist category that then comes into relationship with its others, always to make itself. And that sense of human is what I'm opposing in this book. And what I mean by this, the phrase, we have never been human, that we have always, always been with uh, with earthlings and of earthlings, we are always becoming with, but never in a relationship of human exceptionalism. So it's a particular philosophical and political, theoretical, and indeed scientific tradition of human exceptionalism that that phrase, we have never been human, stands against. And I think that one of the facts of uh, both philosophy, well, of philosophy, biology, and politics in recent decades is that human exceptionalism has become less and less available to think with, less and less of interest to people who are thinkers and makers in the world. And then there's another set of issues around we have never been human, which is to think outside the categories strictly of, of the West, to think uh, with a kind of profound ethnographic insight about all of the ways that persons and people are categorized otherwise and lived otherwise with, with the beings of the earth. So that I've adopted a kind of way of saying things that it matters which thoughts think thoughts, it matters which relations relate relations, it matters which categories categorize categories, and that if one moves outside the lineages of Indo-European languages or of Latin or of Greek, that and, and enters really in the proliferation of ways of being living and dying critters on this earth, that we have never been human takes on still other meanings, which is to say that you know those of us who have grown up with tr- the traditions of the Western world also must not uh, live and think that in a kind of exceptionalist and exclusionist way that perpetuates the relationships of colonialism and imperialism, but uh, a kind of becoming with the ways of being on this earth that are, uh, that are developed and lived and spread and shared otherwise. So we've never been human means all these kinds of things, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. Now, could you tell us where the term companion species came from? Well, companion species is sort of ordinary English that begins to become common in people's speech in English-speaking worlds, maybe especially the United States, but not only, but in Anglophone worlds. I'm not so sure about the Anglophone worlds of, say, Kenya or South Africa or Uganda or other, other Anglophone areas, but I am pretty sure of the U.K. and of the United States and of Canada Companion species becomes common as a term for pets in uh, you know in the 1980s and following, and actually picks up from companion animal that's proposed in the veterinary schools and in in uh, sociology that looks at 
animals as companions in psych- psychological treatment or companion animals in veterinary medicine. So there's that whole kind of lineage uh, that's really quite recent. But there's another lineage which is more important to me, and that is thinking of companion species as much bigger, much more inclusive, much more bumptious, much more promiscuous, really, in its categories, and thinking of the two words, uh, the one word companion, and looking at its two parts, cum and, and panis, with bread, cum panis, those who eat together and are eaten, those who eat and are eaten, those, again, those of the earth, the, those, the, the beings who eat and are eaten, companions together at table, and then species is another really kind of interesting polysemic proliferating word that means a species as a kind of idea or an abstract form or species as coin, species as gold or coin, or species as aliens in science fiction stories, or species as biological categories uh, that never species that dissolve in the very act of doing the biological analysis, the ways that species are both necessary categories and categories that come apart when they're worked. So I'm interested in companion species as a kind of complicated, multi-form, polyphonic, mini-toned category that helps us think what it, what it might be to develop practices of multi-species environmental justice, companion species as earthlings together in a period of profound crisis of livability on Earth. So companion species is a, is a, is a category that I tried to play with in this book to collect up, to collect up and think with, and not just in its roots as... Uh, not excluding its roots as pets and companion animals. I take pets very seriously, but as much more than that. Oh, they they certainly are. There's a lot of people who really, uh, you know, live alone and their their companion species or their pet is the most important thing in their lives. And I, I think that Absolutely. a lot of a lot of and other people don't realise how important it is. Well, I think pets are pet relationships. Or the, the multi relation, the multiple depths of relationships between human people and the animals who live with them closely, as kin, as companions in our home spaces, pets and more than pets, the animals that we work and play with, the laboring animals, uh, the playing animals, the sports animals. I think that we that we live with other critters in many kinds of relationships, and I take extremely seriously the work and play involved in pet relationships. There are a lot of people who want to think of pet as a trivial category or as a category that can't possibly command respect, and I am deeply opposed to that. I think of, for one thing, I think that from the animal's point of view, to be a responsible pet requires an extraordinary emotional skill and emotional responsiveness. I think that to be a pet is affective labor because, for one thing, the the critters of other species, the parrots or the dogs or the cats or the horses or the ferrets, 
animals or the, the animals who are brought into relation into a pet relationship with human beings in order to accomplish the pet relationship on their side i think develop all kinds of skills of communication and of affective emotional labor and i think we do too i think that human animal pet relationships require a kind of profound ontological work work and play so i'm really interested in that kind of embodied communication that goes into pet relationship as one aspect of companion species relationships what was barbara smart's research on baboons okay well barbara smart's research on baboons teaches me many things teaches me about dogs, but I want to go back to her work on baboons. Barbara Smuts is a biological anthropologist, a primate scientist, a primatologist, uh, who got her PhD in the 1970s, and her original doctoral research was supposed to be on the chimpanzees of the Gombe Stream Reserve in Tanzania, Jane, Jane Goodall's chimpanzee research site. But it became, for complicated reasons, it became impossible to do research on the chimpanzees of the Gombe Stream Reserve at that time. Uh, And Barbara Smuts moved to Kenya and took up doing research on baboons uh, in the the Iburu Cliffs troop of baboons in Kenya. There were about 135 baboons in that troop. It was an area, a research area developed originally by another primatologist that I interviewed and worked with when I wrote my book, Primate Visions, namely Shirley Strom. But the young Barbara Smuts comes to do baboon research at a time when researchers are taught by their mentors, not by Shirley Strom, mind you, but by their PhD mentors, that that it's extremely important for them to uh, gather their data as objective scientists, which means abstracting themselves from the animals they're studying as much as possible and becoming neutral to those animals, if possible, becoming effectively invisible to the animals on whom they are collecting data. And Barbara Smuts, a good student, tries to become invisible to the baboon she is studying. She tries to become what she describes as a rock, an object in the environment so that her data collecting could go on without in any way interfering or becoming part of what the baboons were doing with each other and with their environment. But what she progressively was forced to recognize is that baboons are very savvy social beings, and they were not very impressed by her rock act, and that they found her efforts to be not there anxiety-producing and that Smuts discovered gradually that insofar as she became a polite social actor capable of giving uh, a polite greeting, of averting her eyes, of adopting baboon gestures of polite respect, of I am not going to hurt you, of I'm staying over here and not interfering. In other words, insofar as she became uh, recognizable to the baboons, as a competent social actor who could give a polite greeting, the baboons became capable of ignoring her. Insofar as she tried to be a rock, she uh, produced anxiety among the baboons. So Smuts takes that inside and says, look, if you're a scientist 
engaging with other, uh, other social beings. You need to engage with them in such a way that they can go about their business and not worry about you. And that probably isn't your trying to become this stereotypical objective scientist, but rather some other practice of respect. Because Smuts was not interested in what the baboons were doing with her. She was interested in what the baboons were doing with each other in their situated ecological setting, but found it impossible to study them if she didn't engage with them socially in a way that they could recognize. And that was a, a really transformative insight in her research practice. She wrote a book called uh, Sex and Friendship in Baboons that she published in 1985, and she was heavily criticized by other primatologists in that period for using the term friendship, which I think is extremely interesting. And one of the things that Smuts insisted on was that friendship was no more and no less anthropomorphic than, say, the word dominance or the word aggression, that the terminology of competition and aggression and dominance was frequently regarded in a male-dominant science, a Western male-dominant science, as objective terminology, but a term like friendship was regarded as hopelessly polluted by emotionality and anthropocentrism and anthropomorphism. And Smart said nonsense. The word friendship is no more and no less objective, that it's a descriptive term for what the baboons are doing, and that it is a better term than supposedly objectivist language, and that a word like friendship can be examined carefully and scientifically only if its multiple kinds of registers of meaning are acknowledged as opposed to trying to be erased. So she's part of a, of a generation of primatologists. Shirley Strong is another. Jean Altman is another. Many, but not all of them, are women who are arguing that primatology is undergoing profound changes in the way the relationality of the animals has to be studied, if it's going to be studied scientifically. She goes on in uh, later work to study dogs as her central research subjects, and she does amazingly interesting work, often informed by the work she did with baboons. For example, she studies the way dogs play with each other in dog parks, and she is able to show through stop-action photography and other kinds of means that dogs who are competent at playing with each other carry on uh, ongoing polite greetings. Most people know how to recognize, say, a play bow when dogs invite another dog to play, or various kinds of head bow gestures, or various kinds of sidelong looks, or various ways of doing polite sniffing. Most people recognize a whole lot of what dogs do to be polite with each other, to invite play sessions. But what you can't see unless you use kinds of things like stop-action photography is that dogs in a play session continue to give these kinds of partial play gestures, these kinds of partial semiotic, uh, we're still playing, aren't we? That dogs who are competent in play are constantly exchanging ritual greetings with each other throughout the entire play session. And dogs who don't know how to do that aren't very good at play, and they do things that escalate into aggression, 
They do things that get ex- get themselves excluded from play sessions because other dogs don't want to play with them. They can't trust them. The dogs are constantly doing embodied communication that says basically the kind of wrestling and tumbling and play biting and so on do not mean predation, do not mean aggression, they mean play. But the dogs, like people, are constantly involved in kind of embodied, meaning-making rituals with each other in order to be competent social partners. So I think of Smuts as one of the people who's done really insightful and extended research on dog communication work, work and play, but also pointing out that the multi-species quality of this, including humans, that semiosis or meaning-making and its gestures and rituals are always more than linguistic. And I think that work is very fundamental. Yeah, it certainly is. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, and I'm speaking to Professor Donna Haraway about when species meet. Now, pets are often treated like members of the family and pet suppliers, you've really cashed in on it. They're a multi-million dollar business now and it's on the increase, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's international. And when I was writing When Species Meet, I did a chapter called Value Added Dogs and Lively Capital in which I did I tried to look into the development of commodification and consumerism in the pet market, and one of the things I found was that to really get good market data itself was very expensive, that these were highly guarded data, that the investment systems for the the pet markets were highly developed and closely guarded company secrets, and that I, as a scholarly researcher, was only only able to get very partial access to the kinds of data that the companies were using for their investment decisions. But I got plenty, and I, I was able to track a good deal of the radical ratcheting up of consumerism and commodification in pet relationality across the world, that, uh, uh, across, the, uh, across the wealthy world. But the practice of middle-class pet keeping was a highly profitable area for business investment, And obviously, this activated my anti-capitalist allergies and activated my thinking about what what multi-species environmental justice would really look like in terms of kin-making with pets and uh, how to counter as much as possible with commodification, including in the, the veterinary practice issue. For example, our pets now have not just the right to good medicine, but the obligation to healthy living, which is a, a very complex exercise of biopower and of governmentality. So I think this is a really complicated set of issues. For example, I now have a dog who has very short hair and a very, she's 25 pounds and she's built like a whippet, and she gets cold and she shivers. So the very first time in my life, I am buying uh, flannel jackets for her, and she has a dog heating pad that she sleeps on, and all of these are things that I used to regard as the height of decadence, but I now think are actually, um, if I have invited her 
to live in my world, uh, she has an expectation of being kept warm. Wow. There's no way that a person like me, and I think the practice of modern pet keeping, isn't part of a, of, of a commodified consumer world. So how do we live those relationships responsibly? Among other things, how do we notice the issues of uh, wealth? Uh, the, I live in a town where all sorts of homeless people also have pets, but the shelters have very anemic pet-keeping policies for homeless people. It's very hard for homeless people to get state-of-the-art health care for their dogs, just considering dogs now and not other kinds of pets. Why am I and other people like me not major activists for developing kin-making and kin-living practices for secure housing in a multi-species way in our home? In other words, if we're serious about secure housing as a politics in relationship to the homeless, we had better be doing this in a multi-species way. We'd better be noticing that pet keeping shouldn't be a privilege, but a a multi-species right, and that that involves attention to the question of what it costs to be a responsive and respectful person in a pet relationship with a member of another species. So I think we have to think complexly about our economic world as well as our world of emotional and and other kinds of relationships if we're going to be responsible to what it means to be in a pet-keeping kind of relationship. So that brings me also to the question of overpopulation, of numbers, and not just of other critters but of us. I think the burden of human numbers on this planet especially of wealthy human beings. I think that the question of privileged and wealthy people uh, making more babies and continually having more pets is a really serious question. I think the question of justice in numbers, multi-species justice in numbering, needs to be an explicit part of our conversation. And most of us don't have a clue how really to talk about the burden of numbering in relationship to both having human babies and having pets. So I think pet-keeping and kin-making are really important. And I think making kin in a cross-species way is something we are doing and something we need to be doing. I have a slogan that's called Make Kin, Not Babies. Uh, How to to make kin in ways that that doesn't necessarily mean making a new baby including making kin with other human beings, but also with other critters, both those in our homes and those who will never and should never be in our homes. What, what constitutes responsive and respectful and politically, politically sound kin-making in a world that is in the grip of the sixth great extinction, in the grip of mass extinction and environmental destruction, and the destruction of ways of life, including ways of life of human beings. So I think pet-keeping is in the midst of those questions, including the kin-making, of which pet-making is one kind. So I think kin-making is really the center of my attention these days. And obviously, When Species Meet is a book in that, that tries to do part of that work. 
Yes, it certainly does. And thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Well, you're very welcome. I enjoyed the program a lot. And in addition to wanting people to read When Species Meet, I also so want people to read the book that I just published, which is called Staying with the Trouble. Great. And I've been speaking to Professor Donna Haraway about When Species Meet.